we did not have sex and um, that I was kind of following the belief systems of that purity ring and that commitment mm -hmm. to God and to my father. So um, at 15, I went to pick up a girlfriend at a party. I was driving um, and I went to the party, it was like a college party, you know, and we were like freshmen, I think, or maybe sophomores at that point. Um, and I couldn't find her. And, you know, I was totally sober. I was the designated driver. So I'm walking around the house trying to find her. And she called me really intoxicated. And so this guy was like, Oh, I think I know who your friend is. And he led me up the stairs. And, um, into a room and shut the door and that was that he proceeded to you know touch me hello everyone i am your host lion and i believe that we have a great opportunity to more fully understand and appreciate some of the sexual trauma that women have had to endure and continue to endure. The frequency of this trauma might vary depending on where in the world one might reside. But I believe this is still an area where more sexual trauma is inflicted upon women. I also believe that we need to be exposed to more stories of how some women choose not to be defined by their trauma and to use it as fuel on the path to their greatness. Chelsea is one such great example who not only has transcended so much, but serves as a beacon of hope and empowerment for other women. Please join us as we learn from Chelsea's path. I am so excited to introduce you all to Chelsea. Um, Chelsea grew up um, a middle child in a rough neighborhood um, where um, she was, um, you know, um, exposed to around um, prostitution um, as well as gang violence. Um, her immediate home environment, um, including her father, grappled with alcoholism and her Parents grappled with an abusive relationship with which affected Chelsea's home environment. Her older sister grappled with mental health challenges. And as a result of these trials and tribulations very early on in life, Chelsea made a promise that she would not rock the boat, that she would be a good girl, the best girl. Um, and so she... Um, excelled in school and, and her, her first love, if you will, gymnastics. Um, she experienced a lot of non-sexual violent trauma as well growing up where she did and was forced to move out uh, of her house at the very tender age of 15 to fend for herself. However, this was after she ex had her first experience with violent sexual trauma. And it did not stop there. Throughout her young life, she experienced 
sexual assault on more than a handful of times, which we can't even begin to imagine um, how, um, you know, how it traumatized her. This led her to exist in a constant state of survival mode where she started to, um, you know, um, act in ways um, which were constantly rooted in, in flight or flight. And when she finally realized how she was grappling with all of this trauma, um, began her long healing journey. And it took a lot of work over the years. And today it's led her to a place where she helps other women um, in supporting their healing journey, as well as um, seeking out training in this regard to, to be a trauma specialist. Um, how did we do, Chelsea? Is there anything that you would like to add to that? Um, no, I mean, I think anything, anything that was missed will be brought up. <laughs> yep. Fantastic. So before we, uh, before we dive into it, can you please share with us the story of how you and I met yes. for the audience? <laughs> yes. So I was in Nevada City. That's where we met. Um, I went to a spoken word night um, and Lion was hosting. Um, and actually, there's a part of the story I haven't told you, Lion, but um, you were up on stage and um, one of your poems was about the masculine feminine healing. And I am in the midst of writing my masculine feminine healing course. And so um, your poem really impacted me. And I'm like, yes, there's brothers out here who are doing this work, who are speaking about it, and so eloquently as, as you do. So um, that, that was the first draw to you. And then at the end, you mentioned um, an online platform for storytelling that you facilitate for people all around the world to tell their stories. And immediately I um, got the ping to come approach you and introduce myself and offered an idea of sharing uh, birth stories. I'm a birth worker and um, I have access to a lot of people from all over the world that have uh, very different birth stories. Everyone's is so unique. And so I thought that could be something special that we collaborate on. And mm -hmm. said yes. <laughs> very enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what's so amazing is that usually um, in a lot of these um, episodes, I'm usually the one who goes up to, you know, these people. And what's so uncharacteristic is how you approached me. Um, so kudos to your courage for coming up to a total stranger. Um, and look where it has brought us. Um, so, so thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, as we um, dive a bit deeper um, into your childhood, could you help us understand, because one of the things that really stood out to me was how you were very quiet um, as a very young uh, girl. And 
Um, and so the background of that, and when you finally found your voice around the age of 10, how that was um, a very, um, you know, um, interesting experience. So I'd love to begin there. Yeah, so um, I was definitely described as a child as like mute, very shy. Mm. Um, it's interesting though, because I didn't actually feel shy. I remember mm. um, witnessing and just choosing not to speak. <laughs> so um, I didn't feel like timid, but that was, that was how I was described. But um, I was born with some ear issues and I had ear surgeries. And so um, it was like I was hearing underwater. And mm. so I think that was what initiated the, you know, not talking because it was, it was loud. I was hearing things really distorted. And so, um, I got my ears fixed, but after that, I was still just really silent. I was an observer, is, is how I was described as well. I just, I took everything in. They could tell I was smart, you know, they could tell I was really on and I was really smart picking things up, but I just wouldn't talk. Um, so my, my experience with my household, <laughs> my family are yellers. Uh, the 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 yelling is was the thing it was very loud the tv was always on there was a ton of yelling and um that for me was super overwhelming you know coming from coming into this world for years without you know being able to hear all the way to hearing all the way and having it just really affect me um so i would actually stay up at night I was like, I had insomnia and I was like a cat and I would go around the house, like crawl around the house at night because it was so quiet and it was the only time it was peaceful. And mm. so my mom would find me like sleeping behind the couch or like under the coffee table or whatever. She would just find me around places because I would start, I would kind of venture out at night. Mm. Um, it was quiet and I, that's what I needed. I needed quiet. So yeah, that was kind of where all of that started. So I was, uh, my house was really chaotic and my environment was really mm. chaotic. And so I, yeah, made a decision really actively, um, probably around first grade. I remember this specifically because I remember my teacher at the time that I was just going to be the best student, the best child, the best daughter. Mm. And I would put it attention and like, just, <laughs> you know, just be the best I could be. Um, so I found gymnastics at three years old and I became obsessed with it. And, mm. um, you know, I just, I really, re I'm in so much gratitude for my parents because they actually were driving gymnastics like away every day um, because I was just so in love with it and it wasn't something available in our community. So uh, they were really, you know, committed to allowing me to do that I loved uh, and that for me was the discipline and the structure that really lacked at home so mm. I just I loved everything about it you know I didn't have to talk mm. <laughs> I didn't perform um you know it's it's all about discipline so and that's mm. really what I needed in my life I needed that sense of discipline and, and structure so um yeah that was definitely a saving grace for me yeah 
there was a turning point around the age of 10 where you were no longer um, willing to be as quiet, mute as you were. Yeah, so I had um, a moment where I remember really actively being, being really angry, just really angry. I had this rage in me. I, you know, I started just getting, getting over it, just getting over everything that was going on in my house. And um, I, I freaked out. I started screaming at the top of my lungs. And I made this conscious decision. Like, I remember like, the day like it was like leading up to this moment where I was just like, okay, I'm gonna scream. I'm gonna say everything I want to say. I'm just gonna like, mm -hmm. and I did. I mean, I really I was like, they yell at this level, I'm going to this level. And so I did. Mm -hmm. And so the reaction to that, because also I, I was kind of, um, you know, the forgotten one in the sense that mm -hmm. I didn't get a lot of attention in in the way that my sisters did because we had the baby and then we had my older sister who caused a lot of you know trouble for the family and so i was the good one and i was the quiet one and so i kind of got pushed to the side in a lot of ways and so mm -hmm. i decided i would act like my older sister but amplified <laughs> and so i mm -hmm. freaked and i freaked out and um the reaction was um my parents actually brought out the video camera and videotaped me losing it and um they were all laughing and mocking me and it definitely was not the attention that i expected yeah. to get um mm -hmm. seeing the attention when my elder sister would throw fits or my baby sister would throw fits um mm -hmm. much different than that so that was that was a big uh trauma win for me Absolutely. Just being finally expressing myself, obviously, in a totally unhealthy way, but just like really getting mm. there and having them video it, being mocked and um, being laughed at. Mm -hmm. And I believe um, one of the things that you shared was even your mom's, your mother's observation to your father about how there was a disparity in how he treated your older sister compared to you. Mm -hmm. um, are you able to paint a picture of, you know, how that disparity and your older sister's mental health challenges sort of uh, further exacerbated um, your sort of existence at that age in the house? Yeah. So my older sister struggled with a lot of depression and suicide. So um, that, and I understand now, obviously, as an adult, that when you have a child that is threatening or attempting suicide, you're kind of walking on eggshells with that child. So it would be a lot of, you know, we all knew that she was suffering so badly. So it was like, oh, oh, Chelsea, just like, just, just deal with that. Or like, don't, don't make a fuss about this or that because you know, she's sick essentially. Or, you know, it was a lot of one-sided. Um, I mean, everyone really just wanted to cater to that. And mm. I understand why that must've been terrifying as parents, Yeah, uh, you know, to deal with a 
young woman in that state, but I definitely got pushed to the back burner um, because of that in every way. And um, I know my father was really close with her. She was the first mm -hmm. daughter, and so they were really close. And then she really rejected him and started hating him and pushing him out. And so he was always trying to make it up to her and show up for her and, you know, take her to ball games and like do, do things with her. And mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't have that connection. I really wanted that connection with my father, but it just wasn't available. And my dad has actually said um, recently to me, like, you know, I just, he's like, I don't really remember that much because you were always quiet or you were at gymnastics. And mm. so he didn't really remember me having like, you know, some of the traumas that I have. Um, yeah. He was an alcoholic, so he was pretty drunk most of my, my childhood and my life. So um, mm. there's that, but also I just, yeah, I tried to um, be incognito and not, not cause a stir in our family. Mm -hmm. Thank you for uh, bringing up your dad uh, because it provides a good segue into as part of your dad trying to overcome his alcoholism, he turned towards religion. Mm -hmm. How, if you could provide some more background and how that changed the dynamic uh, within your house and your perception within that yeah um you know in our household there weren't very many rules or boundaries or it was it was kind of a free-for-all we were all really you know we were all really good kids and um but yeah it wasn't we weren't disciplined um in the sense of you know a parent-child relationship so um when my dad found Jesus as a born-again Christian and went down that mm. rabbit hole um, and was sober for, I think, maybe a year and a half, two years, but then went back into alcohol and, and um, still held these beliefs really strongly. And, um, you know, people use the term like Bible thumper or whatever. He was very mm. passionate about spreading the word of Jesus Christ. So all of a sudden in our household, there were these rules <laughs> mm. especially around sexuality it was um you know you are you have to stay pure and there you know my my father gave us all a purity ring at some point mm. I think 13 we all got our purity ring and it was a vow that we would not have sex before marriage mm. and um I was actually always very in tune with my own spirituality. I have journals from when I'm like eight years old talking about feeling the love of God in the ocean and like just, so I, I was very spiritual. So, um, and my, my father is as well and he always has been, but going down that really strict, like Jesus is the way path, mm -hmm. um, the big toll on my life where I got very resentful where like, I kind of had my thing going. I was in gymnastics. I did my thing. And then all of a sudden there's these like strict rules around certain things. And mm -hmm. I'm really resentful. Not to mention it was yeah. like, I didn't go to the grocery store without my dad preaching to every single person, 
you know, it was really intense and, and I just got angry, you know? Yeah. I can imagine how draining it must be to have to endure that at a simple grocery store run. Um, but I think it, uh, you know, thank you for sharing that because I think, you know, your sort of dad's um, relationship uh, with religion uh, is a very important part of the context um, of what happened at the age of 15, your first experience with sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. um, can you share the story um, of, you know, that night and, and what happened? Yeah, so... Um... I had been in a relationship with my boyfriend mm -hmm. in high school and um, I was a freshman he was a senior and super sweet guy. And I had this very strict thing embedded into me and programmed into me like we cannot have sex before marriage. And so I was really holding that. And I remember actually there was one time where we sat down with a calendar and we're like, what, let's pick out the date we're going to get married when I'm 18 kind of thing, <laughs> you know, and um, he was very respectful of that. And so we did not have sex and um, that I was kind of following the belief systems of that purity ring and that commitment mm -hmm. to God and to my father. So um, at 15, I went to pick up a girlfriend at a party. I was driving um, and I went to the party. It was like a college party, you know, and we were like freshmen, I think, or maybe sophomores at that point. Um, and I couldn't find her and, you know, I was totally sober. I was the designated driver. So I'm walking around the house trying to find her and she called me really intoxicated. And so this guy was like, oh, I think I know who your friend is. And he led me up the stairs and um, into a room and shut the door. And that was that. He proceeded to, you know, touch me, kiss me, attack me. I had a skirt on. He kind of immediately started like with, you know, feeling me up. And then, um, yeah, I that was how I lost my virginity so that was my first rape experience and after that I just felt you know there was there was so much around that commitment for me I mean I felt like I failed God I felt like I failed my father I felt like I had cheated on my partner um, yeah. and so I totally gave up on myself I actually went to my partner I did tell him what happened and he was supportive as much as like an 18 year old guy can be or a 17 year old guy can be but um I immediately had sex with him because I'm like well now I'm ruined so we might as well just do this and so it started this spiral of like I am a tainted woman you know and yeah. my, my mother actually never asked me how I lost my virginity or if I had lost my virginity. I mean, there was zero conversation around anything like that in our house, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And 
as a result of this experience, how did it impact your relationship with your father um, and ensuing um, sort of, um, you know, dynamic as a result? And yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, the anger and the resentment just grew from there. And mm. when I, I was, I was very distant from them and mm -hmm. pretty much stayed at my, my boyfriend's house at that point. And when we broke up and I just wanted nothing to do with them. I was ashamed. I knew that there wouldn't be any understanding. There wasn't, um, <laughs> there wasn't when they did find out there was no understanding around it. And so I decided I needed to get out of there that I had been taking mm -hmm. care of myself and, you know, you know, everything when you're a teenager. So I was pretty confident that I would be fine in the world. And I went into the principal's office and asked what I had to do to graduate. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I only needed like one or two credits. And so I finished that and I was out. I just needed to go. And I would say I really like hated my father for, for quite a while. We didn't um, really reconcile our relationship until my late 20s. And now mm. he and I are so close. He's one of my best friends. I love him so dearly. But it took a long time. Yeah. And I can't imagine sort of the, the you know, the sort of circumstances around sort of having to undergo um, the sexual trauma that you experienced and then to have the kind of family environment that you describe um, to feel so isolated that it would um, force you to leave um, the San Diego area, which is where you grew up, mm -hmm. um, and move to, uh, I guess, Long Beach at that mm -hmm. time. Let's fast forward um, a bit. Because you were, you know, in that area for a few more years until you moved to Boston. Mm -hmm. um, um, I remember that when we were talking, um, I was quite surprised um, by Boston. Could you share with the audience what drew you to <laughs> Boston? Yeah, well... I mean, I have to kind of briefly describe the segment in Long Beach because that, you know, that was that was a big one and it kind of caused the move to Long Beach, or I mean, to the East Coast. Um, yeah. But I ended up really going out into the world without any tools and um, having to figure it out. And that landed me in a series of relationships with men um, that were very, very abusive. Um, I ended up in the hospital. Um, I was abused in many ways during those years. So, um, you know, my thing, I was really kind of programmed with, oh, you're going to be, you're the pretty one. You're the trophy wife. These are things that my father would say. Um, you, you better find a good man to take care of you because that, and, 
it wasn't like college wasn't in the in the conversation or what I would be when I grew up wasn't in the conversation. It was like, your life is lined out, you need to find a man. And so mm. I was playing off of that. That's that was my goal was to find a man to support me. And I kept, you know, finding men in these really rough areas that were gangsters that were, you know, they were rough men. <laughs> so there was a lot of trauma there. And then from there, I decided, okay, this is it. I need a new start, totally fresh start. So I moved to Boston with $300 and a suit. Uh -huh. And it was the middle of March and I had never even seen snow or felt cold in my <laughs> life. So I had like, a hoodie sweatshirt and jeans like I didn't have any gear and I remember getting there and just trying to like walk to the grocery store from the apartment and just like oh my gosh what have I done <laughs> you know but yeah that started like a nine-year journey on the east coast yeah um and just for clarification the narrative of the trophy wife can you clarify who was feeding that to you? Um, it was kind of um, the joke of the family. Um, mm. My my sisters would like introduce me to people as the pretty sister. And, you know, my dad would do this thing at the dinner table where he would ask everyone questions like, who's mm. the president? And, you know, like do these like questions. And um, mm. my old is very intelligent and so it became the joke where he would ask me a question and then he'd interrupt and be like oh what's two plus two can you answer that one and like things like this so it was really mm. like embedded in me that I was the pretty one and my dad would say like you're going to be a trophy wife you're going to be the trophy wife like you're going to find mm. a man who's going to take care of you and so that was you know, as much as I thought I was like running against that, like, no, I'm going to do it all on my own. I was always searching for that as my, as my goal, as my endpoint. Like, I didn't have a clear um, vision on career opportunities or what do I want to be? It was always like, where is that relationship? When it, you know, where is this man? So, so yeah, that was, that was really embedded. And, um, it, it played a massive part in my life, for sure. And probably the decisions you made um, as a result of this programming, very deep programming that you speak of. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to talk about New York. Um, you were 24 when you moved to New York, as you described it. Yeah. You were on cloud nine. You were a dancer, a gymnast. Um, you took some theater choreography. Um, and I remember when we were talking, you described that part of your life when you first moved to New York as you felt like you could do and be anything. Mm -hmm. um, so could you... Um, help us understand and you know so for the audience um, New York and, and soon after you moved to New York um, set the stage for um, what I will call um, 
the most difficult um, sort of sexual trauma experience that that you had to ex- you had to undergo. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you um, paint us a picture of that time um, leading up into sort of um, your experience? Yeah. Um, yeah, New York is is a very passionate, beautiful, art-filled place. And mm-hmm. I, um, you know, it was pretty simple for me to find an apartment and to get on my feet there, get a job. It, I felt like I was Forrest Gump. I was just running into these situations that, you know, I wasn't necessarily even qualified for. And it would be like, here, like, do you know come have this job or it just felt like magic through and through um and so that so i was moving out of my apartment and um looking for another apartment and do you want me to go into the story of of that situation whatever you feel comfortable sharing (laughs) okay yeah um yeah, I'm ready to to speak to it. I think it's important. Um, and and with this, you know, I I was at a time in my life where, because of the history I've explained with with my father, with my commitment to God, with the guilt, the the feeling. I mean, I truly held a belief system that I was tainted, that I was disgusting. Mm-hmm. I was all these things. Um, And I started just giving my body away. Like just, I was, I was an object to a man. And then that coupled with the belief system of the trophy wife thing, I truly believed that I was just an object to a man. And that's, that was that, you know? So I was really trying to work through that. New York is a really interesting place to date, you know? So, um, I was trying at that point to kind of just, you know, I felt, I I felt just ecstatic to be in a new environment and it was, it was just intoxicating the city. And so I, I was like trying to really start to reel that in and, Mm -hmm. you know, find a new identity for myself around my sexuality and really just go into my, my gifts and my art and all the things I was doing. So right at that the pinnacle of that um i was looking for a new apartment and a man messaged me on facebook and we had a mutual friend who's my best friend in the whole world and Mm. um he messaged me and said i have an apartment on the upper east side and i wasn't planning on renting it out but if you need a place to stay you can stay there i am actually living in la right now and i won't be back for like six months and I thought this was like more New York magic, you know, like, oh my gosh. And so I'm like, like, okay, you know, we have this mutual friend who I really love and trust. And like, yeah. <clears throat> so I move into this apartment and I'm just like beyond myself. He, he, he told me that I don't have to pay rent if I don't want to, that I can, you know, just be there because the apartment's not being used. So I was in this beautiful apartment on that very side, just, you know, coming from like the ghetto of Brooklyn where I was living. And yeah. I'm just like, yeah, I'm moving up in life. So that was really exciting. Um, about a week into me being there, 
It was Fashion Week in New York City, and big week in New York City. And mm. he shows up, and he comes into the apartment, and I'm a little confused by mm. the whole thing. Like, hey, I'm just, you know, I'm here for Fashion Week, and I'm only going to be yeah. here for the week. And um, I was like, okay, you know, you can I'll sleep on the couch or whatever. And he's like, no, no, it's fine. You know, he seemed accommodating, but I was, I felt weirded out by the situation that he would show up a week into me being there without any notice. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how detailed to get with this story, but I, um, there was a night he invited me out to, um, to fashion week with him and he had a driver and we went to this club that I was like, you know, at this club in this booth, like VIP booth with like Jude Law and mm. all of the Victoria's Secret models and all these actors and models. And I'm just like, wow, you know, what's, mm -hmm. what is this, you know? And um, they all knew him and he was very wealthy and well known. Um, but at, at that point, even I was, I was really skeptical of him. Just there were, mm -hmm. he was, he was doing during that time um, but I was kind of playing the part, playing along, like, okay, you know, he's letting me have his home. I'm going to like, you know, entertain this. So there was a part where, um, I went into the bathroom and he came in and, um, I'll skip some details, but <laughs> he, he basically, um, uh, he, well, he took my head and slammed it against the the uh, bathroom sink and that was it i knew i was in trouble and so yeah he led me out to the car and um like forcefully mm -hmm. and went back to his apartment and from there i endured three days three and a half <laughs> it seemed like forever so that half was important um mm -hmm. three and a half days of rape um, and I was locked in the room and there were just times where I you know I, I didn't know if I was ever gonna get out and this man was a heroin addict and so he was he was shooting up and um, there were actually other people in the apartment multiple times and I would scream um, and when I did, you know, he would come in and I would get hit and silenced and they didn't care that I was there. They knew what was happening and they didn't care like a room, you know, an apartment full of people. So that was pretty terrifying. Um, I remember at one point there there was this picture on the wall and it was like of this vase of flowers and I remember every time he would come in I would just look at the picture and stare at the picture while well, he he had his way with me and it was some sort of comfort or something but um yeah. 
So finally that one day he walks out of the room and I could hear, I mean, at that point, everything, when you're in trauma mode, everything is really hyper sensitive, right? You're like hyper focused. And so he walked out of the room and I heard that he didn't lock it. I could hear it didn't, he didn't lock it. And so I was like, okay, you know, and so I'm, I'm like, this is my out. And mm -hmm. I waited probably about four hours. It was completely silent. And so I'm like, okay. And I, I remember I just, I kept waiting. Cause I was like, if I, you know, I don't know if people are in here. I can't hear anything. I hadn't heard anything in hours, but I was just like, I couldn't, you know, I was like, okay, finally, I'm like, I have to just go for it. Mm -hmm. So I bolted out the door and I happened like, my bag was sitting like by the door. Um, and so I picked that up and I ran. And I, you know, I finally got out of there, but I didn't have anywhere to go. Mm -hmm. I didn't know where I was gonna live. Um, I did get a hold of my work and I was fired because I wasn't there for four days with no call and they didn't care why. <laughs> this is New York, you're very replaceable. Um, and so I sat on the side of a, a, just a street corner and I listened to Little Girl Blue by Janis Joplin over and over and over and over and over. And uh, Janice really knows what's up. I felt like I felt like she understood me. You know, I felt like someone someone was there for me. Um, so I did that until a man, a taxi cab driver, um, very sweet Indian man, and he pulled over and got out of the car and said do you need a ride? And I said, no, no, I don't have any money. I don't. And he's like, well, just get in. And obviously he could tell I was not in a good state. And um, I had been hurt and I had bruises and I had, and so he got me in the car eventually. And we just drove in silence for a really long time. And then he started really slowly just kind of asking me some questions. And then he said, okay, you need to, there is somewhere for you to go. You have a friend here. And I'm like, no, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have any money, I don't have anywhere to go. And I just kept like, like a loop. And um, he said, no, there's some, there's somewhere for you to go. And so I had called my, my roommate who I had um, moved out of her home and asked her if I could, you know, come stay. And um, she took me to the hospital and it all progressed from there. But um, yeah, it was a really terrifying and very disheartening time. I mean, it went from like full ecstatic about life, like all possibility as possible to just buried in this little tiny hole. and. I had severe PTSD. I would be walking on the subway and I would feel like he was following me. 
And so I had to get out and put my back against a wall and I would just shake and, and the back, my back against the wall was like my, I would, I would stay there for hours. Like I just wouldn't be able to move. Um, I'd be on the phone with somebody and then I'd start whispering to them. Like, we can't talk. He's, he's listening. He's listening. And it was frustrating because I knew that it was crazy. I knew that he wasn't following me or listening. Like a part of my brain knew that, but I was so convinced, like I could feel him at all times, like hovering over me. Um, so yeah, eventually I went to a counselor that was recommended and like a rape clinic or like a women's clinic in New York. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting down with this counselor and just telling her I've been raped. And she responded to me and I didn't even get into the story or any of the details. And she responded to me like, girl, girl, you're in New York city. Every woman gets raped. And then I just froze. <laughs> I just felt okay like there is no help nobody cares um yeah so that, that was a big turning point for me um when I left that appointment I just decided that I had to drop it right then and there that I just had to move on with my life and keep going and that no one cares and no one wants to hear the story and no one's going to help you out. And simultaneously I had, I had called my parents and um, mm -hmm. I left the hospital. I called my parents and I let them know what had happened. And I didn't hear from them for four months after I mm. what had happened. And, and in speaking to my mom, she called me four months later while I was at work and said, honey, how are you doing? How's work? Mm -hmm. And I just said, no, no, you don't get to be in my life. Like, mm -hmm. oh, how did I share that with you? And I just haven't heard from, how did you not jump on a plane? And, yeah. and that was when she opened up to me about her horrific trauma and mm -hmm. started you know, for her at five years old and mm. how she froze and she didn't know what to do and she couldn't deal with it. And essentially it is like me asking a five-year-old to like do something about my trauma because there hasn't, you know, she didn't have any resources either, you know, um, to, to heal. So, you know, I immediately found forgiveness and understood the situation but it didn't take from my, my, my loneliness in it. And my, I just was so defeated. Yeah. Thank you so much for your courage mm -hmm. in sharing every, everything that you did. There are a lot of um, people um, who I want to applaud your power um, for standing in your truth and sharing that because there are women out there 
who have experienced sexual trauma, who, you know, um, grapple with um, this and, and, and seeking help. And uh, I want to applaud your courage for um, so authentically um, sharing um, not only what happened, but your emotional, mental, spiritual state um, as a result of this very intense experience. Um, when we were talking, you shared how that experience in New York and then what ensued with your parents, um, you know, to your own point, it was one of the times when you felt the most alone in your life. Um, help us understand how that segued into the start of your spiritual journey, your healing journey. Um, yeah, so I decided to move out of New York City shortly after that. Um, Hurricane Sandy hit, and I was living on the Lower East Side, and it was horrible. Um, and I decided right then and there, I can't be in a city, especially New York, for any kind of natural disaster. And this was in 2012. Mm. And so I packed my bags, and I moved to Nantucket, which is a little island off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Um, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, most of it's totally um, protected. The land is protected, and it's stunning. So it's this just beautiful island. And I became a runner because I just couldn't get enough of the nature because I had only lived in cities from, from that point. So when I finally lived, you know, on an island with these sunsets and deer and, you know, little mm -hmm. lightning bugs as I ran and just like this, just nature, nature mm -hmm. healed me from the inside out. And I didn't even, I knew that nature was healing me, but I had no idea. I mean, it was the first time I had seen creeks and seen trees like this and like been in the woods and um i knew i could i could tangibly feel the effects on my my body mind spirit emotions everything just healing me um and that is also where i found craniosacral and reiki and yoga and other modalities um and i was hooked that was it <laughs> and so I really dove into a lot of womb clearing and um, embodiment practices because what what happens many times in sexual trauma, what happened to me is that my nervous system, my body decided it is unsafe to be in this body. So I disconnected and I went up here, which was wonderful for my spiritual journey because I wasn't connected to my trauma and I wasn't connected to my emotion. I was just kind of, you know, up here um, seeing like the bird's eye view of everything, which really helped me develop, um, develop my spirituality. And then it came to this point of realizing how far I had come from my body 
and that I thought I was over my traumas and I thought I was totally healed. And then I came into my body and felt mm -hmm. all of it and realized that it was all still there. And so, you know, after my experience of being completely alone and not only alone, but I felt so rejected by this counselor, by my family, by, you know, I felt so rejected in my experience. And like, it's like hush hush, like you don't talk about your rapes and you don't talk, you know. Mm. And so I decided pretty immediately into my journey of embodiment that I would um, be the ear for any woman who needed help with their sexual trauma or had experienced anything um like that you know so yeah that, that's now i mean now i'm in birth work and um i still get phone calls all the time for women that have experienced sexual trauma and um i would say i counsel them and give them practices and things like that but um ultimately i just hold space and you know, validate these stories and show compassion and love and let them know that they're not alone in this. And there's no comparison, you know? There's mm -hmm. no, oh, you've been through this and I've only been through that. I mean, everybody has a story to be heard, you know, to be heard and acknowledged. So, yeah. At the end of that work. I want to sort of reiterate um my understanding and have you correct or add to it as you wish um the way i hear it is as you began your healing journey um part of how you were led to approach it um ended up with you sort of um going more into your spiritual space mm -hmm. and, and um, transcending your suffering um, through tapping ever so deeply into your spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, and in doing so, you, you know, began to help um, others um, until you realized that um, in some regards there was somewhat of a disconnect where, you know, mm -hmm. you, although were operating um, from much more of a spiritual place and being okay with um, all the injustice that happened to your body, um, and in life, um, that um, you realize that there was an opportunity for you to bring that healing more towards your body and how um, maybe you were engaging with in the world, maybe as far as your body language and 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 whatnot. Um, if 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 that's accurate thus far, can you help us understand? What were some of the signs, symptoms um, that helped you realize, mm -hmm. hey, there's still work to be done and the work 
you know, remains, you know, primarily uh, for my relationship with my body and, and making it feel um, that, that it's okay, and, you know, mm -hmm. start that healing. Yeah, I, I think that um, I realized at some point, I mean, well, I mean, let's start with that moment where, you know, I, I decided after that, that um, counselor was just like, look, you're not special. This happens to everyone. And I walked out onto the city street and was like, okay, this just has to be done. Like, this just has to be over. I can't, no one's going to help me. I don't know how to help myself. So it's done. And that's, that's, you know, I had to leave my body because there was so much trauma that had been done, yep. but there was no way to process it. So you get into this, um, you know, they say the trauma modes are like fight or flight. And I always thought I was a fighter. That was the mm -hmm. I thought I was a fighter. But I realized later that there's fight, flight, and freeze. <laughs> and mm -hmm. creation. And so at first I disassociated so that I could move on with my life. So that I could go get mm -hmm. a job and put a smile on my face and make new friends and like just do life. And mm -hmm. I disassociated from it. And then I realized um, through many encounters, and then it actually took another um, encounter with mm -hmm. attacking me. I want to sort of make sure you have the space to continue sharing that for our audience. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is important, I think, for for people to really be able to identify um, what type of survival trauma response they go into. And so, uh, like I said, I, I always felt like I was a fighter. Um, yeah. And, and that was mainly because I was so in my masculine because I was literally fighting for my life in so many situations. Yeah. And then I was on my own for so long. Um, you know, I've also, I've, I've traveled alone. I've been to 27 countries by myself and um, I've just been in this masculine, like I'm on protector mode. Um, so to realize that my trauma response was actually freeze um, was shocking to me. Mm. I realized I was frozen and that I had cultivated a life around my freeze mode and and i was still frozen i was still unable to let people in i was still not able to reach my trauma because i was in the response of it constantly like autopilot and so mm -hmm. i had cultivated a life from this from from this mode and you know i thought at the time i was you know a lot of people were like wow you know Chelsea, you're so empowered, or you've you've gotten you've gotten through so much. And I used to look at them like, well, yeah, isn't that what you do? Like, I just, but I had no idea that I hadn't actually gone through my trauma, that I had just had this like frozen, like, let's just keep everything in place so that nothing goes awry. And I was associated, and so. It was a shock to to have that come in in that way, 
um, and me have to really dive in in a new way into my traumas and into my um, embodiment experience and look at what was stored in the closet, you know, when I thought that I was, I was over it and I was just so strong and I just moved on from things and, you know, yeah. it takes time and it takes, honestly, what it takes is support um, because I did as much as I could on my own and I'm really proud of that. But that is what actually kept me in that trauma response for so long. Mm -hmm. So help us understand you, you, so I'm picking up on a couple of things. Number one, the limit of the amount of work you could do on your own. So I'm curious to learn more about what were some of the practices that helped you better address uh, the trauma within your body and to, to get healing there. And the second thing you talked about was um, support, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what did that support look like for you? Yeah. Um, some of the practices have been, I started, I think my, my first most profound shift in my healing was through Vipassana um, and it's, you know, 10 day silent meditation and it's um, in a very specific way. They call it brain surgery really. Um, and it is. <laughs> so I kind of got obsessed with Vipassanas because I had so much shift in my life. Um, and then I went on to, really diving into the women's work and I started going to a lot of women's circles and then um especially like women's festivals like women's like five-day events and things like this where I was introduced to somatic work um mm. somatic movement dance therapy uh breath work breath work was and still is probably my number one modality for moving things through um and the community that I live in now and the community that I have built has been my support team. Um, mm. I have worked with people one-on-one -on -one that, that have been wonderful, um, you know, where I've kind of gone a little bit deeper with one person. Mm -hmm. um, but just knowing that that I have the support of my community, I held a women's circle in my community for years, and um, we just we're family. We're family. So knowing that I have cultivated the family that um, you know sees me and <laughs> accepts me. Um, and by the way, update on my family. They do as well. We've come a long ways and really address some issues head on. And they're just, they're also, I just feel so loved by them and so understood by them now, now that they're also like unraveling a lot of their traumas and, and being able to talk more openly, you know, coming from that generation of like hush hush everything. So I'm really proud of them. And yeah, healing relationships. As you heal your trauma, you are healing your relationships. And I didn't realize how isolated and alone I was um, 
until I wasn't. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, um, from when we were talking, I mean, this journey as a result of, you know, not just what you've had to uh, experience, but also as a result of all the healing that you've been able to experience and the community and support um, that you've experienced is one that's inspired you to be there for other women as well. Um, so share a little bit about that and what your aspirations and dreams are in this regard. Hmm. Well, I just, I feel like we're in a place and in a time where everyone is really yearning for community. Mm -hmm. um, that's like the main talk. <laughs> I think around everything is either community or romantic relationships. But either way, connection to others or another. And I think that it's just really imperative to understand that without going through your traumas and being seen and witnessed, and I have not figured out why it is so important to and healing to be witnessed but it is a step that I have not been able to, to shortcut, you know? I, I've had to sit there and be witness to my trauma for it to really open up for me to go through it. And that in itself creates connection. So I think, you know, many of us want this, you know, ideal community living, but we're still so, frozen in our own trauma we're so you know we're so um just afraid and and kind of disconnected and so yeah my bigger aspirations and dreams are that we really begin from the inside out to mm -hmm. ourselves to support the people around us get to know your neighbors you know get to know the people at the grocery store you know like drop into conversation, be vulnerable. Um, I think these things are, are just so important right now. And, and, you know, really surround yourself with people who open you and who you trust, you know? Um, yeah, I think that we can feel isolated in any situation. Um, we really can. I mean, that's, that's, what's, that's always available to us. But when we actually just like gain this courage to, to step out of that shell and just see how many other people are waiting for that, it's like we're all like waiting behind our, you know, blanket, like who's gonna do it first? So have the courage to, you know, introduce yourself, to talk to people, to find people that, you know, you, you can relate with, you can dance with, you can cook food with. I mean, these are the things that I'm, you know, envisioning for our new earth, that it's just one big community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think um, 
that's a really good place to sort of bring everything full circle. Um, I really appreciate how um, you sort of shared, um, you know, you took the first step um, as it relates to this episode mm. in sharing and opening up and speaking of, and I believe deep down in my heart that your courage um, will travel through your voice mm. to others who hear your words, mm. will feel um, what they will feel in their body as a result of your courage and your journey mm. and your aspiration. And they will make moves, however little, um, towards the direction of growing community and increasing support mm -hmm. and increasing, you know, for the women out there, mm -hmm. um, tapping into their voice, mm -hmm. tapping more deeply into their power. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you uh, once again mm -hmm. um, for, for being so brave and sharing so deeply so authentically, so freely. Are there any last words that you would like to share as we bring this episode to a close? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm feeling one thing for anyone watching. Um, you know, I often watch things on, on the internet and I'm like, why can't I have that courage or that power? And I want you to know that stepping into this, um, Lion, thank you so much because it was really Lion who gave me this space and allowed me to evoke these things and to, to end myself. I, you know, I'm giving myself credit to you for stepping up, but this isn't just easy or natural or just innate. And I don't have some special gift that you don't, you know, that somebody else doesn't have. Um, it takes courage and it takes trust. And I really just hope that um, everyone aligns with a lion or, or you know, a, a friend that can help with this process to evoke this because this has been uh, a really deep journey for me for a couple of weeks since Lion and I spoke and it's opened places just in telling him my story. I have unlocked and unraveled so much since we we had that initial um, meeting and you know this is just a never-ending healing journey and so know that we're all in this together we're all doing the best that we can and that we're here to support you <laughs> I'm here to support you I know Lion's open to support you and um, yeah I just encourage anyone who feels the need to share their story to it can be so healing it has been for me and i'm just so blessed to have this opportunity so thank you thank you so much chelsea for sharing and pointing out that you know despite uh the courage that that you've displayed um that there isn't something otherworldly about your courage, that this is something that we all have the capacity to build up to, because I think that's so important 
for everybody to realize that we all have that within us. Um, and it's a matter of trusting the voice and experience of those of us who have walked this path who are a little bit more forward um, and, and, and feeling our authentic sort of sharing and how it's aided our healing journey mm -hmm. and then making the choice, making the cognizant choice to take that leap for ourselves mm -hmm. and knowing um, and feeling that community, sisters, brothers are there mm -hmm. to hold you um, despite some of the bumps that there might be in the road, right? Like we as a society, we as a community, we as a world have a lot of work to do, but know that, you know, there are those of us out there who are waiting on the other side if you decide to take that leap um, as part of your healing journey. Mm -hmm. So thank you once again, Chelsea, for sharing so deeply, so freely, so authentically uh, of your spirit. Um, and I want to thank our audience um, so much uh, for um, their presence. Uh, I hope, um, well, I believe that this is going to be the beginning of something very big. Um, um, definitely for you, Chelsea, and, and as a result for, for me um, and our audience, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, and with that, um, until the next episode, our lovely audience, I bid you love and light. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Get Out of Your Comfort Zone series. I hope it moved you and inspired you if you are feeling stuck with something in your life. If you would like to further connect with our guest, please see their contact in the description. Please consider taking a moment to rate this podcast. Please also consider showing us some love on your Instagram story. You can find our info in the episode description. Until the next episode, I wish you infinite love and light. Thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs>